Hello there, you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. I am Drew Tavendale. With me tonight, at least um, in spirit, if not entirely in body, Scott Morris. Hello. And um, Craig, unfortunately, still hates us and won't join us. Or, or, or maybe it's just because he's not got internet yet. Hopefully he'll be back soon. This is going to be another of our intermission episodes, uh, which, as you know, by now, a grab bag of stuff of what we have done seen. So... Without further ado, just get straight into this. Scott, if your voice will hold, will you tell us about Death Note, please? I will start and we'll see where we get to. (laughs) Uh, I suppose I've been aware that Death Note is a thing for a while now, specifically an anime thing that's on the list of things that I keep saying I'm going to catch up on, but plainly never will, given current experience, which is a list that really needs a snappier title. Uh, at any rate, it seemed that this westernised Netflix adaptation would be a foot in the door, but for aforementioned reasons, if you're looking for a review to tell you how accurate a translation this is, I am not your boy. In this sense. In all other senses, I of course remain your boy. Infeasibly named high school student Light Turner, played by infeasibly named 22-year-old Nat Wolf, because of course he is, heaven forfend a teenager play a teenager, makes an ill-advised stand against the school bully that doesn't go all that well for him. Opportunity for vengeance arises when demonic death god Rook, voiced in mocap by Willem Dafoe, drops the titular notebook into Light's lap. As long as Light knows the real name and face of a target, simply write their name, and if so desired, the dispatch method, into this book, and lo, they are forcibly shuffled off this mortal coil. After taking the opportunity to kill the man who killed his mother in a hit-and-run accident some years ago, he reveals this exciting addition to his library to fellow youngling and soon-to-be girlfriend Mia Sutton, played by Margaret Qualley, also 22, oy vey. Spurred on by her, the two resolve to use the Death Note for good, by murdering hundreds or thousands of alleged criminals without due process using the book's limited method of victim mind control to create the diversionary fiction of this happening under the aegis of a divine Lord Kira. Now, this does raise the question that if, in this westernised adaptation, the Japanese name Lord Kira is chosen to throw the investigators off the scent. In the original work, do they similarly arrive at a cover name of Lord Baxenby Fotherington Smythe? <laughs> Speaking of investigators, there's some immediate family tension caused when Light's detective father, James, played by Shea Wiggum, announces that he's joining a team of investigators into these their Kira killings. An investigation not sitting well with the public who rather approve of criminals scattering in fear of their lives. Not, it turns out, that James does much of the investigating, that being left to the enigmatic, possibly insane L, played by Lakeith Stanfield, with his mysterious past becoming a plot point later on. L is essentially handled here as some kind of souped-up Sherlock Holmes, and he makes inroads into the case at some rate. This book's lighted Mia, with Mia pushing for the murder of the investigation team as a precaution, but clearly patricide isn't on the table for light. All of these tensions pushed towards an unremarkable climax on a Ferris wheel, which I believe was also the title of Morrissey's third solo album. <laughs> Death Wrote is resolutely alright, but no more, and frankly there's not all that much to say about it. Um, I suspect this is why almost as many column inches are devoted to allegations of whitewashing rather than the film itself, because that's more interesting to talk about. I'll <laughs> largely refrain from that here, apart from suggesting that people review what the word adaptation means, and also point them at much more egregious and obvious examples such as Ghost in the Shell. As for this film, our our protagonists and antagonists put in adequate but unspectacular turns, which is enough to drive the plot forward but without ever making it feel like anyone cares all that much about the events that unfold. 
the premise is interesting, but there's no real tension around anything that happens, apart perhaps from the end sequence that engineers some, but only through some ludicrous contortions that almost makes me wish that they hadn't bothered. There are positives, mostly from Rook, who is one creepy-looking character, and Defoe, who is also one creepy-looking character, uh, <laughs> but, more, but more importantly for this film, a creepy-sounding character, which lends him an air of quiet menace that's a high point of the film. It's tempting to wish for him to be featured more heavily, but it's probably the more sparing appearances that keep it special. As for the rest of it, it feels like a bit of a squandered opportunity. For example, for my money, the most interesting part of this is the following that this seemingly new divine entity, Lord Kira, gathers, with quickly blown by news footage showing cathedrals being torn down by worshippers of this new god. It'd be interesting to dive into that, whereas here it seems it's only mentioned to set up a assist from a member of the public when, he, when light's being chased by L. I suppose that's best suited for an episodic format, which circles back to the central question of why make this film? It's had some terrible reviews, which I think are a trifle harsh, but I'm not going to pretend that my predominant feeling towards this film isn't mild disinterest. I'm happy to take it as read that original Japanese works are much better, but perhaps the most critical flaw I can find in this film is that it's very much dampened my enthusiasm to watch any of them. I do have a few niggles with the nitty-gritty details of how this film's rules work and how they're related to us. <laughs> but, to be honest, when the bigger picture is so off, there's not much point in slandering all the minutiae. As a standalone experience, I'll give it this. It, it takes more than a few risks with its content, themes, morals and characters, and that's more than most mainstream Hollywood output could say. And with an admittedly sizable but not insane budget, it looks about as good as any other live-action comic book adaptation. Um sure that will endear it to many, and in a lot of ways I wish I liked it more. I can at least appreciate what they're aiming for, but in the end I don't think I can give this much of a recommendation to anyone. No. For me it doesn't even reach resolutely alright. It's largely bad. It's <laughs> certainly boring, and you mentioned to Scott about it not really making much sense with its own rules. Yeah. Something which tends to bother me a, a lot in film. And yeah, especially because quite early on they established that the the method of death has to be in some way feasible, physically possible. And then we're given the example of you can't have a shark appear through a toilet and eat someone. Like, yeah. That doesn't seem a great deal less unrealistic than yeah, the lot. finale, yeah. to be honest. I do tend to very much dislike films where, you know, something mysterious or supernatural is happening and people refuse to believe at any point. Yeah. So, And I do like you occasionally get a film that will will have something like that but the whether grudgingly or not, the people in the film, where be they police officers or whatever, will you know eventually there's, there's all this evidence here that there's strange supernatural things happening. Okay, we're going to believe that. In this film, it just goes straight from nothing happening to we believe everything. Yeah. Instead of thinking right, there are because it starts off it's like up at about four hundred people dead within the first couple of days or something, isn't mm, it? Then yeah. when you start really seeing the effect of this Lord Kira. Thing because they leave the message saying Lord Gear did this and that's where this cult begins and they seem to have immediately decided oh yes actually it's all the same person doing this I'm like, that would be magic yeah so you've immediately jumped to believing in magic and that, that doesn't really sit well with me but it's very much the least of the film's problems the first is well again it's of course no teenager's going to play a teenager that would be mental <laughs> um, there is the problem that the two teenagers erstwhile teenagers that are in this film are deeply unlikable partly the point I think but I guess that we're supposed to feel some sort of tortured moralising in them or something Yeah. but 
but no, because basically from the first moment that they kill someone, it's like, all right, that. So at no point any time in the film am I going to be thinking, oh, this poor light guy with his silly name is going to be a tortured soul wondering whether the morality of what he's doing is right or not. When the first person he kills, he kills just because he was a bully and he doesn't seem at all bothered by it. Yeah. As they move on to child molesters and serial killers and rapists and things and like setting aside the big issue of due process etc and appropriate punishment is like okay i understand why you're attacking them but your first person died because he pushed somebody over in the playground more or less and you didn't blink an eye when you saw him brutally murdered yep <laughs> and then and then you can move on to so you think he's bad enough and then his girlfriend is evil this is substantially worse yes Yes, um, she has no redeeming characteristics at all. She is evil, and by no quirk of casting does she look like Kristen Stewart. More than a little. It's like, yeah, you're just appealing to Twilight type crowd, aren't you? And not even hiding it. And so I get this idea that she's supposed to be tortured teenage souls and things like that. No, they're just not nice people. There's no moral quandary there. They are horrible, bad people. Yeah, I do wonder um, how much this suffered from being adapted down from presumably a multi-part. Yeah, I think death was quite thing. long. Yeah, And, and um, it seems like there should be this sort of slide between, you know, being going from idealistic and sort of doing it for the right reasons yes. and then going power mad and all that. But it just is compressed in a so short a time frame. It just seems daft. That's it, exactly. Yes, it is so compressed. There's no, there's no progression at all. There's basically person is in school, person's responsible for the murder of hundreds <laughs> like that. Whereas... Yes, the idea, because there is an interesting idea in that, and it's kind of frustrating too, because they have this power and they think, oh, but we're going to get justice of a sort. Yeah. And then, yes, maybe they get addicted to it or find it. The various rules that this book has don't allow them to easily give it up, yeah. that sort of thing. And maybe they become corrupted in some way and, went, oh, no, we've gone too far and it's wrong, actually. We see the consequences of doing this. And it turns out, because that's what they never do either. They never explore the fact that anybody might have been innocent. Yeah, especially when they're just pulling names at random off a message board. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Even if you just have one person who they later find out was innocent, then you suddenly have this moral quandary and like that could be interesting to explore, but they don't seem to have any interest in it and the characters probably wouldn't care because from step one they're evil. They're they're not (laughs) likeable, relatable or sympathetic characters in any way at all. And I don't know, I wouldn't say their acting is bad. I just... I couldn't warm to them at all. Partly yeah. because of how the characters are written, I think, but Light and his girlfriend, I didn't like at all. Shea Wiggum, as his dad, mm. is likeable enough, but his character doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense either. And mm. as you mentioned, it's L that does most of the investigation. The only redeeming feature for me is Willem Dafoe. Yeah, he's good. He, he is. Um, the design of, of Ryuk is really rather interesting and... There's a there's something that Guy Woodward said years ago he, that fooled people into thinking it was a real quote from the Dark Souls creator Miyazaki. It described one of the demons in, I think, Bloodborne at the time as a sort of mad as fuck wank demon, if you will. And every time I saw Ryuk, that quote was coming to my head. I was like, yes, yes, Willem Dafoe's Ryuk is a sort of mad as fuck wank demon, if you will. <laughs> Willem Dafoe's decidedly sort of creepy voice uh, very similar to how he portrayed the Green Goblin in the Spider-Man films, I would guess. But mm. that matched up with that rather interesting character design means that he's really interesting. 
and I don't think I would want to see that character more. No. And like you say, it's the rather sparing use of them is quite good, and a lot of the shots are sort of semi-obscured or over the shoulder or just largely a, a pair of eyes and a dark face and his, his huge porcupine-like quills, but not seeing all of him. And that works quite well, but if he's meant to be something of a a satanic character or that sort of the great tradition of demonic characters who can twist people like genies in a lot of Arabian stories and things like that, you know, careful what you wish for sort of thing. If they'd explored that more, I think that would be really rather interesting. But as it is, it's just, it's incredibly bland and insipid. And <laughs> at the same time manages to make me angry because it, these are just bad people and it, nothing makes sense. So, no, I... I thought that looked quite interesting, Death Note, but it, unfortunately, it's it's just not a good film. I, I couldn't recommend yeah. that at all. Yeah, there's there's good ideas in there, but they've not really been surfaced properly, which is a bit of a shame. You know, a lot of potential, but all wasted. Yep. Okay, so we move on to Death, but in a fortunately somewhat different manner. Mukte Bawan, Hotel Salvation in English, is the debut feature from 25-year-old Indian writer and director Shubhashish Bhutiani, who, before this, had made a name for himself with a couple of award-winning live-action short films. 77-year-old former teacher Daya, Lalit Bale, lives with his son Rajiv, Adil Hussein, his daughter-in-law Lata, Gitanjali Kulkarni, and granddaughter Sunita, Palomi Ghosh. After being plagued with a recurring dream for several weeks, Daya comes to the conclusion that the dreams mean that his time has come and that he is about to die. He declares to his family that he wants to go to the holy city of Varanasi on the banks of the Ganges so that he can die there. To the point that this is a comedy, <laughs> well, comedy <laughs> drama, because it certainly doesn't sound like one so far, but stick with it. Rajiv tries to dissuade his father from this notion, but he's a willful and stubborn guy and manages to push the buttons of his stressed, workaholic, but dutiful son by telling them that he doesn't need to worry about him and that he can make his own way there and, by inference, die alone. So Rajiv arranges time away from work and travels with his father to Varanasi. There, they check into the rodent and cockroach-infested Salvation Homestead, where the curmudgeonly owner Miss Raji, Anil K. Rastogli, informs them that guests can stay for two weeks, and if they don't die within those two weeks, well, they simply re-register under a new name and carry on waiting, apparently. <laughs> One resident, Vimla, Navnindra Bale, Lalat Bale's real-life wife, has been waiting to die for 18 years. That's a lot of names. <laughs> the hotel is something of a hospice, but a hospice for the soul rather than the body, where people come to find what they seek on the banks of the Holy River. And what do they seek? Peace, perhaps? Understanding? In Daya's case, though he perhaps didn't realise it, it's a rapprochement with his son. He rebukes his son for giving up on the poetry that he used to write as a child, but Rajiv tells him that Daya beat that poetry out of him. Both Rajiv and Daya will find what they seek, and many things they either didn't look for or didn't expect to find. For a film about death, Hotel Salvation is surprisingly funny. One scene sees Daya stir from his fever long enough to tell the monks who have come into his room to sing and prepare his soul for his departure to bloody well sing in tune if you please. Though it's funny in a way that feels true to the characters and largely avoiding gallows humour. It's also touching without being maudlin or mawkish. 
The acting from all concerned is low-key and undemonstrative, and all the more affecting for it. Without any histrionics or bombast, but with warmth, the cast portray a believable, relatable family dynamic. Lalit Bale brings dignity and gravitas to his role as Daya, but does so with a twinkle in his eye and more than a hint of mischief. But it is Adil Hussein who deserves the lion's share of the praise. He transmits well the various stresses and duties that his character carries on his shoulders, the competing desires for his father not to die, but for the whole thing to be over so he can return to work. He's regularly on the phone with his boss during his time in Varanasi, and it's clearly bothering him. But in his time in that city so associated with death, he learns something about life. Thanks to David Hewler and Michael McSweeney's cinematography, much of the film has an appealingly relaxed, languorous, almost a hazy aesthetic, with the sun energising, rather than enervating, the peeling paintwork and rundown buildings of the ancient city, and the nighttime scenes are full of colour. There is something of a surprise to be found in Tajar Junaid's at times prescriptive score, also in that it issues the very obvious choice of a sitar in favour of the Western Guitar and Orchestra, which, being no fan of the sitar, I welcome. I would like a little more substance, the film feeling a little slight for me on occasion, but at 100 minutes it's efficient and affecting, and doesn't outstay its welcome. And it's a fine debut from Butiani, whose future work I look forward to. I can't really think of a reason not to like Hotel Salvation, yet at the same time I didn't really like it all that much. <laughs> For I expect largely... I, no, that's, I take that back, that's not fair. Um, I did actually enjoy it a fair bit, but what I didn't find it at all to be was funny. Uh, <laughs> or something that was sort of half-billed as a comedy drama, then it's... Uh, I only got the drama parts of that but the drama parts are quite good um, and mm. I quite liked all the character relationships uh, they all seem believable and it's just interesting to have that being part of a culture that I've got very little familiarity with uh, it was an interesting little explanation of what happens when you in Hindi faiths when you feel like you're on the way out because this is not something I'd kind of ever heard of before um, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting film to watch on that basis I rather suspect I'll have to watch it when I'm in a somewhat better frame of health because um, that's probably more than anything else was part of me missing any subtlety on it. I'm not wasn't picking up on that, but uh, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, it's a really beautiful film in terms of just the visuals of it. It's uh, frequently very beautiful. Um, it's it's a sort of film that on paper I really should be liking a lot more than I actually did. Um, but I'm gonna sort of chalk that up to just not being so well <laughs> at the time that I watched it. Yeah, I mean, I can't really pick too many flaws with it, so yeah, I guess I have to recommend it, even if I don't feel all that enthusiastic about it. Yeah, it's interesting that you say you didn't find it funny, and perhaps it is because you weren't feeling well, because the the humour in it is, it's fairly subtle and nuanced. I mean, some of it does come from juxtaposition, like the bit that I mentioned where he's dies in that bed, he's suffering from a fever, everybody's expecting him to die, and it just interrupts their singing to say, go and sing in tune, please. Uh, mm-hmm. So there, and there, so some from juxtaposition, and there are a few other moments where it really is quite subtle. So maybe just if your mood's not quite right, maybe you're missing it. I'm guessing, but but there were certainly a few points in this film where I laughed uproariously because something was just so funny. Yeah, no, I never really found anything that was that was there. There's was, there was little nice sort of moments that would make you smile, like I think when they were in the uh, almost any scene when the characters in a boat for the most part. Um, there's a few sort of boat rides that tend to have nice little exchanges back and forward um, 
once with the uh, the grandfather and the uh, the woman whose name sorry my name I've forgotten Vimla Vimla and uh, once later on when the whole family's there uh, that's got little nice moments like them in the back taking selfies and stuff like that that, that kind of stuff worked quite well um, it's a good ensemble piece and yeah like I say I'll, I'll need to revisit this when I'm a bit more uh, Gompus Mentis and see what so obviously you didn't you didn't laugh at the kangaroo bit either that just seemed weird <laughs> There's uh, no reason uh, to be reincarnated There's a kangaroo just because it's got a big pouch. In situ there, I found that very, very funny. That's uh, why he wants to come back as a kangaroo, because it's got really convenient pockets. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but uh, say, I'm not, I don't want to give the impression that it's a comedy film, but there's definitely some humour to be found in this film as well, which is I mean, not necessary in a film about death, but it, it's, it just leavens things a little, Yeah, uh, which is nice. And also important to not think of this as some sort of Indian version of Best Exotic Marigold Hotel or anything, which it's fortunately not. Um, it <laughs> yes, also has no Bill Nye, but <laughs> <laughs> these places, I forget the name now, like a Bawat or a Bawam, something like that. These hostels or hotels that people go to to die, something that the director discovered while he was backpacking around India and thought it would make an interesting. Uh, it's Bawan, I think, just the, um, where the name of the, the film comes from in Hindi. They can never strange things. So that's culturally so very different that these are places that people go to to die because they've decided they're about to die, not not through illness or in that way. And as you say, it's got that bit of an insight into a completely different culture. Yeah. I mean, because you watch a film from anywhere in the world, the way people interact with each other is the same everywhere because humans are humans. But maybe exactly the way they do that or the things they do and why they do them are different because they cultural um, structures around them and it's really yeah. interesting to see something so different like this it's almost kind of touristy stuff i guess but just like scenes like the the festival at night with all the lights yeah. and the dancing singing and on the boats and it's just it's just beautiful that's just a pleasant thing to see quite apart from how it works into the f- structure of the the film there mm-hmm. i certainly would recommend it. it's interesting not quite like anything i've seen before i don't think at least with the content yeah, um, I mean, I agree with that in terms of a recommending it because I can't, I don't have any specific reason not to recommend mm. it. So, you know, by default, I guess, falls into the positive category. An overwhelming uh, recommendation you get there. Well, by default, I don't see you don't want to watch it. Okay, then, Scott. Thomas Mapother Cruise the Third. He had another film out recently. Yes, um, American Made, based. Ever so loosely on the zany life story of one Barry Seal, this Tom Cruise vehicle was going to come out in January but was pushed back to September, apparently to avoid competition with Amityville The Awakening and Underworld Blood Wars. I'd like to reassure you up front that this film is significantly more enjoyable than you'd expect from a film that execs were reportedly doubting would (laughs) succeed against two unflushable steaming tollies in cinema's toilet. Here, Cruise plays Barry Seal, a young hotshot pilot, finding himself bored with the day-to-day routine of his job as a TWA pilot. We'll choose to believe him when he tells us that he's approached by CIA operative Monty Schaefer, played by Dom Hogleason, uh, with an offer that he can't refuse. Seal is set up with his own aviation firm and a flash new aeroplane with an aftermarket modification of a surveillance camera on the undercarriage. He's tasked with running routes that take him over Central American flashpoints, taking photos of the various rebel groups and so forth that are of interest to Uncle Sam, and soon acting as a go-between between uh, the CIA and Noriega. Word of this zany yank's exploits soon reaches the Medellin cartel as Pablo Escobar worms his way into yet more media. Escobar is so hot right now. 
He's given another offer that he can't refuse and supplements his meagre CIA stipend with a spot of the old drug smuggling. This proves insanely lucrative and even more so after the CIA ask him to start running guns down to the Contras, who I believe were a popular Konami franchise at the time. And, <laughs> and so it goes with Seal expanding his team to keep all of these groups happy. Well, for a while at least. Whilst all this is going on, Barry must also keep his wife Lucy, played by Sarah Wright, and their kids in the dark about this. Well, at least until the amount of cash that they're hiding in every available nook and cranny renders any cover story pretty suspect. His home life, and the reliability of his cover story, takes a hit when Lucy's brother and serial screw-up JB, played by Caleb Laundry-Jones, arrives through and, through multiple indiscretions, attracts the notice of pretty much every crime investigation agency in the USA, although I think they'd already started to notice what was going on, and a net closes around Barry, with the CIA quick to slap a burn notice on Barry and disavow all knowledge. There's further twist at the tale before Barry's story comes to a sudden end, but you've probably got the gist of the film. Uh, the movie is framed around Barry recording a series of video diaries detailing his exploits, uh, so he can be used as a narrator to jump between time frames, a device which works well enough, particularly in a film that's not taking itself entirely seriously. This film is centred almost entirely on Cruz's turn, and I'm sure there are some people tired of his, this couch-jumping fool, but for me he's still at least charismatic enough to enhance a middling script and story, such as we see here to be quite enjoyable. Uh, it's aided by its pacey delivery and a few very effective aerial action scenes. Doug Lehman's film is wearing its influences on its sleeve, and if you are going to draw from a film, Goodfellas isn't a terrible template to follow. Cruz's manic energy pulls us through Barry's madcap adventures, although I'm sure it goes without saying that it is not a patch on Goodfellas. What is? In particular, imagine if Goodfellas didn't have De Niro or Pesci to counterbalance the author's turn. It'd probably still be enjoyable, but nowhere near a classic, which is exactly where American Made winds up, and that's not a bad thing overall. Who wouldn't want to watch an enjoyable film? People who hate joy and filthy <laughs> communists. That's who. You're not a communist, are you? No. Well, recommend you give this at least some consideration when you catch up to it. It's probably not something you really need to rush out to the cinema and see, uh, but when it shows out on catch-up, it's worth putting on your schedules. It's a solidly enjoyable, mid-budget B-movie in the sort of old sense of things. It's got enough charm and enough energy to be an undemanding and enjoyable enough watch. Yes, another mild recommendation for this. Rejected running jokes for this review, references to Seal Team 6, Seal lyrics, seals of approval, and something really tenuous about the Chuckle Brothers. I've not been well. There's nothing tenuous about the Chuckle Brothers, Scott. There's only awesome. I have not seen this yet, so you're either correct or well off of the mark. Yes, or uh, somewhere in between. <laughs> yes, although I may not be a communist, but I'm probably a dirty liberal pinko, so <laughs> maybe I won't enjoy this, I don't know. <laughs> it looks reasonably appealing, and for all that in real life, Tom Cruise is a strange and crazy person. <laughs> I've always found him generally pretty engaging on screen. Yeah, uh, and I always thought he's he's been a good actor in most of these. Been in. on occasion can be very good, never great, but on occasion very good. Uh, certainly, in terms of being an, an actor, I have no problem watching Tom Cruise. Just, unfortunately, I never tend to see things like talk shows where he jumps about in couches. Uh, yeah, I watch that sort of thing. <laughs> so I I generally never see most actors outside of them as actors <laughs> yeah. I can generally set that sort of thing aside this is certainly at the cheesier end of uh, the cruise spectrum but uh, 
there is something to be said that he's now getting... Well, he, he seems like the kind of person who's getting too old for this, but on the other hand, he doesn't seem to be getting too old for this, if you know what I mean. He, he always <laughs> seems to manage to pull it off. I, I remember a while back when, uh, probably around about the time he was in Magnolia, and I figured, okay, that's, that's Cruz's next act then. He's going to transition from, you know, action pumped to, to you know maybe getting into like smaller more character driven indie pieces and then nope <laughs> not, not <laughs> happening for another 20 years <laughs> no so. um if i to get that third mission impossible film came along and after i think it's a reasonably big gap between two and three isn't yeah. there um yeah uh, but yeah that came along and suddenly it's like oh he's an action star again okay it's, it's <laughs> unexpected like what i'll actually do is just endanger my life in a series of ridiculous stunts and yeah. that's somehow endeared us to him so <laughs> That's the thing, though. You know, if you look at, for instance, like the on-set footage from, I, I'm not putting this forward as a good example because it's terrible. I made the mistake of watching it, and I almost considered including it in this podcast, but I couldn't bring myself to write about it. <laughs> Having watched the Mummy, um, <laughs> it is every bit as awful as you might expect. Uh, I, I may give you a little treat of telling my thoughts on it in the next intermission podcast next month, but you see the on-screen photographs in that one. He looks like he's beginning to have the body of a fifty-plus-year-old man. And in the film, they use computer magics to make him look all buff. But at the same time, while he, he does appear to have had some cosmetic surgery and stuff, he doesn't look ridiculous in those roles. No. But yes, he's getting a bit old for them, but he doesn't look ridiculous. And in particular, I'm thinking, set aside Mission Impossible, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. He, a bomb, is that character more or less? And mm. he's aging pretty well, even with some help but he's aging pretty well whereas other people have been far more egregiously cast and things like this and it's just never worked so yeah i do wish he would go back to more character driven stuff though because that's been his more interesting thing yeah because it was obviously a few good men that sort of thing the firm rain man i guess actually in rain man and he was quite young when he did rain man that's 1988 that's a good long time ago now mm-hmm. but it was Dustin Hoffman that got all the plaudits for Rain Man because Hollywood loves people with mental impairment on their films. If you've got a disability, you're getting an award. If you remember, even for like tremendously mediocre films like Snow Cake, where Sigourney yeah. Weaver was obviously being talked up for the award because she had a mental disability. And that's apparently all you need. Like, was it actually generally good or not? Yeah, and a beautiful mind, the noise. Kind of. yeah. But in Rain Man, uh, well, Dustin Hoffman got all the plaudits. It was probably Tom Cruise that really did the best acting there because his character really changes. And it's believable that his character's becoming to love his brother who really resented at the start of the film. Mm. So he has shown bits and pieces of some like genuinely interesting character roles there. And then he's popping up in Michael Mann's collateral showing he can play an interesting villain too. And actually, I'd like to see him go down that side more. I think that'd be more interesting than... You know, the the big action star, all-American hero type thing that he's yeah. done so much. But yes, I think maybe, after all that, I'm not sure there's a, going to be another Mission Impossible film coming, but it may be time for him to step away from this sort of role. Because yeah. he's pushing it a bit now to be believable, I think. Yeah. Because he doesn't have the same sort of physicality. Not that he plays a sort of a brute force kind of action hero, but... He doesn't have the same sort of physicality that even an older Sylvester Stallone or someone can, can play. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe Sylvester Stallone's 70, but when he turns up with the, the Expendables or something like that, it's like, yeah, he'd probably still tear my head off. 
Mm. Uh, you know, I, I believe that that man's still very, very powerful. Whereas um, with Tom Cruise, the the action stuff that you'd expect him to be able to do, it's not so believable anymore. Yeah. yeah so he's pushing it a bit, I think. I've managed to talk a lot about a film I've not seen. Well done, me. <laughs> so we'll move on to something I have seen, do you think? Why not? Right then. Anthem of the Heart. Talkative young Jun, a girl with a strong imagination and an innocent heart, sees her father, the prince, leave the magical castle on top of the hill in his carriage after attending the ball with a beautiful fair-haired woman. Excited, June runs to tell her black-haired mother of what she has seen. The castle is, in fact, a love hotel, and her father is certainly no prince. In the next scene, we see her father preparing to move out of the family home, and in a 100% successful attempt to add scumbag father next to scumbag husband on his curriculum vitae, her father tells June that this is all her fault. The distraught child then meets a magical egg, which tells her that her talkativeness is the problem, and that she must be cursed to never speak again, so that she can't harm anyone or cause them pain again. And also so that she can't fall foul of nefarious telemarketers. Hmm. No, really. Yes. <laughs> telemarketers. <laughs> we jump forward several years, and June is now in high school where she is selected by her teacher to be part of the leadership committee for their class's community outreach project. She manages to utter a couple of words in protest, which shocks her classmates, none of whom have ever heard her speak, before suffering crippling stomach pain, something she experiences whenever she tries to talk. June goes to the teacher's office to plead with him, and walks in on Takumi, a boy there for the same reason as her, singing, and something is lit inside of her. June, living in her own speechless solitude for so long, thinks that Takumi has the power to see into her heart because of what he was singing about, and, frightened and confused, she confronts him. He has no such power, of course, but Takumi and June begin a friendship which extends to the other committee members, baseballer Daiki and cheerleader Natsuki, as they decide to really challenge themselves and the class by putting on a musical with lyrics based on June's stories about a prince, a castle, and an evil egg. I, as cynical old man, am definitely not the target audience for this film, which is aimed, I think, more at teens. But I find myself quite touched by much of the film. I am very much aware that had this been A, in English, and especially B, live action, I may well have felt very differently about it, as, though it avoids the most cliched ending, it is certainly open to criticisms of unoriginality and saccharinity. I do have a few criticisms though. As with most films, the voiceovers are, at best, unnecessary, though fairly limited in use here, and its need to spell out the metaphors is infuriating, even given the age of its intended audience. And it's fair to say it's a bit heavy-handed with its message of the importance of self-expression. But while her falling for the first boy that shows some interest in her is rather an obvious and easy route to take the character, that June improves and grows as a result of discovering the joy of music and friendship is touching and true, and reminds me that, thankfully, I am not nearly as cynical as I think I am. In general, the animation is serviceable. It's clean and well-drawn. There's just little that is remarkable about it, though there are some scenes the light and dark in the performance of the musical and subtleties in the character's movements in that section in particular, where director Tatsuyuki Nagai shows hints of something a little more special. Also, as Jun doesn't speak for much of the film, we rely on the animation to understand her and it does a fine job of that. 
and I liked the music. I've always had a fondness for hearing songs sung in a language not my own, and I don't find the Japanese lyrics set to Western tunes, including Over the Rainbow, Swanee, Beethoven's Sonata Pathétique, and Around the World in 80 Days, incongruous in the slightest, as many seem to have done. In the end, I thoroughly enjoyed the anthem of the heart, and found myself engaged by June's plight. Afraid to talk in case she's hurt, or worse, hurt someone else. A reminder of the power and danger of words, and especially the care one must take with the words used to and around children. As the film observes, words hurt people and you can't take them back. Yeah, I agree with you pretty much entirely, although I probably enjoyed it, I think, even more than you do. I would probably be a bit more enthusiastic about this, although my voice would not be able to... Uh, <laughs> not convey <laughs> that satisfactorily. That. Yeah, but no, I really, I really liked it. I found this really, really charming. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of heart to it. Um, as you say, it's not subtle. Um, it is a bit broad in a lot of what it's trying to do, and as you say, probably aimed at a slightly younger market, but I, I thought it was really nice. I really enjoyed it. Um, and by the end of it, it was quite touching, bro. It brought a tear to an old man's eye, which wasn't just caused by a coughing fit. Uh, no, yes, I, I um, did find my eyes a little moist towards the end of the film okay. as well. Um, yeah, no, I enjoyed it an awful lot. Um, I, I don't remember thinking the animation unremarkable, but I don't remember thinking it entirely remarkable again either. So just maybe more in, in stills, it looks quite pretty, I think. Perhaps it looks a bit more impressive in stills than it does in, when it's moving. When moving's not an awful lot of interest in what the animation's done but I, I've, I've no huge complaints yeah. about that um, yeah the framing the framing of it is generally quite good I just I didn't find that the animation for the most part particularly excited me I don't mean to say that it's bad it's not like it's an ugly film or crudely drawn or anything right, like yeah. that yeah, it's just that it's this probably sounds harsh again as I've said before mm. and I've tried it doesn't maybe sound it's not quite how I mean it but it's it's kind of ordinary in as much as I've seen a lot of films that look quite like this, yeah, and it's it's of a good standard, but it's not kind of raising above itself above sure. that average. Sure, um, yeah. But as I say, there certainly are moments though when there's a lot of kind of subtle things with June herself mm-hmm. when you see her twisting the corner of her coat, which is partly anxiety and partly the pain she's suffering from her stomach pains, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, because the character doesn't speak, so there's a lot of non-verbal communication and a lot of that's done well but just as a broad picture i just don't think it's particularly special in, in visual terms sure sure it's yeah it's not a poster child for like revolutionary animation techniques or anything like that it's just solid uh yeah that's oh, yeah enough. solid's a good word yeah i don't think i've got an awful lot more to say over what you've done and so we'll probably just conserve a voice but yeah i enjoyed this an awful lot um i see they are immediately going to ruin it by making a live action one which might actually already be out at this point yeah, so I, I can't imagine that working. Maybe I'll give it a look just to see what what has become of it. Uh, but heartily recommend the animated version of The Anthem of the Heart to anyone. I, I had missed, in fact, the news that they were going to make a live-action version of that, and that worries me slightly. Is it going to be a Western one? No, it was certainly Japanese, I'm pretty sure. Okay, maybe that's not quite so bad then. But quite apart from anything else, it seems entirely unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in Japan, where you know animation is particularly well regarded and very successful, strange that they would feel the need to make a live action version of it. Okay, so we'll we'll move on to another live action film, but in, in no way related in any other sense. And I can't think of a linking device. So, Scott, Bond Sacrifice. <laughs> yes, yeah, Bond Sacrifice. Uh, 
It's hard to fathom, given the ever-declining attention spans that the modern world tends to encourage, but once the world paid rapt attention to televised chess matches uh, between the dominant Russian grandmasters and the young American upstart Bobby Fischer as he sought to challenge them. The 70s are a foreign country, they do things differently there, and it's generally some kind of Cold War proxy. Prawn Sacrifice, a film made in 2014, which sat on a shelf for a year before its US release and then another two before appearing in the UK, which tends not to be a great sign, uh, dramatises the story of aforementioned Bobby Fischer as he grows from a youngling with a raw talent for the game to a young man with a formidable genius for chess, but with equally formidable personal problems, including a paranoia that will eventually be his ruin. Toby Maguire plays Fischer as an adult, prodded into mounting a serious challenge to the Russian team by lawyer Paul Marshall, played by Michael Stuhlberg. He's seconded by William Lombardy, played by Peter Sarsgaard, who is one of the few American players that Fisher seems to have any respect for, and sets about preparing for and beating the chess out of the Russian team, with his sights set on the end boss Boris Spassky, played here by Liev Schreiber. And so it goes, although for obvious reasons it's a little more concerned with the deterioration of Fisher's mental state than his genius for the game, probably because it's not altogether obvious as to what's a genius move in chess, unless you're also close to a genius yourself. Uh, I know the rudiments of the game, but if it weren't for Schreiber's raised eyebrows, I couldn't tell you the difference between a question mark exclamation point and an exclamation point question mark. <laughs> little chess notation joke for you there, I'm sure that's widely applicable to everyone listening. Strong demographic correlation, it tested really well in the focus groups. So while there's no minimising of his talent here, the bulk of the drama comes from Toby Maguire frantically disassembling phone receivers looking for Russian listening devices, and it's largely downhill from there. Of course, the thing of it is that being spied on is not an entirely unrealistic expectation given the geopolitical proxying going on at the time. I guess about five or six years ago, I watched the documentary going around the festival circuit, uh, Bobby Fischer vs. The World. Mm-hmm which had a very similar focus to this film, and if my memory serves, I think I preferred to this. I don't have a hugely strong reason for that view, really, as Pawn Sacrifice is also a perfectly acceptable film, with perfectly acceptable performances, particularly from McGuire and Schreiber in the final confrontations. There's a few things that stop it being entirely successful, particularly because there's no way that it's thought of to really get across the nuances of what makes a chess game great other than cutting back to an excited-looking Sarsgaard explaining it to Stuhlberg, which works well enough, I suppose, but it's not hugely cinematic. I'm not saying I've got an answer for that conundrum, but, well, I'm not the fella putting chess in front of modern cinema audiences. And, well, I don't know how someone who had not been keeping up to date with Fisher's life story will approach it, but if you do know that the ending is in no way happy, you may well wonder how the film will send you home with a song in your heart. It very much does not, Indeed, the abrupt drop-off from Fisher's moment of triumph to the text describing his ultimate endgame leaves as bad a taste in the mouth as the credits roll than any film I can think of. Pawn Sacrifice is a decent enough film and it's well made with a talented cast. It's just taken a difficult subject to make an entertaining film out of and not quite meeting that goal. It seems a story altogether better suited for a documentarian format. There's still an audience for this, but it's certainly not a wide one. Chess fans, those with a particular interest in the period in politics, those looking for a portrait of declining mental health, only the intersection of all those sets, I'm not sure. This is a solid film, viewed dispassionately, but I'm just really not sure who it's made to actually appreciate it. I'm afraid there's no solid conclusion to this review, which I shall blame on the flu, but well, if you like this sort of thing, it's the sort of thing that you'll like. 
I wondered if you were going to mention Bobby Fischer versus the world. We saw that together, I believe, mm. um, Film Festival in Edinburgh years ago. Yeah. And I, I, I knew the name Boris. I also knew the name Boris Spassky, but I knew the name Bobby Fischer. Mm. I had a vague idea of what he was well known for and about him. Beyond that, I knew nothing in it. No interest in chess, but found that a truly fascinating documentary. Yeah. Because of the things you say to, uh, rather than so much about the chess, about the the idea of the tortured genius, the mental deterioration, the fact that not to not deliberately making this pun, but um, the fact that these people were pawns in yeah. um, their government's um, manipulations at the time, and it was fascinating and really tragic too. Uh, mm. As poor kid, he had a rather troubled upbringing, but then certified genius. And you saw the shots of him like playing 24 games of chess at the one time and you know, winning yeah. all of them. And and then the chess match against Spassky in Iceland, and that sort of thing, and then his deterioration. And Bobby Fischer's Jewish, but by the end, his mindset become so deteriorated that he was a very, very staunch anti-Semite. And it was all just very, very tragic, but very interesting too. And so for that reason, I was really rather interested in Pond Sacrifice and quite interested in that. So I didn't watch it. <laughs> but that was just a time issue, not a lack yeah. of interest issue. But, but there we go. It, it sounds interesting, but I do think maybe that the documentaries was enough. Did it need dramatising? I don't think it did, and I don't think it does a particularly great job of it. I think it's just a, it's just a subject that really seems that it, it's tailor-made to be covered by a documentarian with proper interviews about his mental state rather than just trying to infer it from an orchestral score and things like that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just seems more sensitive to do it as a documentary of nothing else than to try and make, you know, make it... And I have this discomfort with quite a lot of films, we kind of alluded to it earlier, but any film where mental illness is being used for someone's entertainment, you know what I mean? It just doesn't seem particularly human in a lot of respects. And... And you need to be awfully sensitive about it, and I don't think this is, this goes out of its way to be you know unsensitive to Fisher, but because of the way it's not really portraying him in any kind of person, great personal light at all, it can yeah. feel like it's been a little harsh to him. And I, I don't doubt that that's actually realistic from what I remember of the uh, the documentary, but it seems like this this guy's reduced life is reduced to being great at chess and going mad, and that just seems. <laughs> I don't know, a touch inhuman. It's the sort of thing I think the documentary was definitely a better way to look at it and it's probably the better film. Not that this is bad by any sort of, you know, rational description in terms of the art of filmmaking such that it's a really well put together film. Uh-huh. I just don't think it should have been put together in the first place. I mean, it's, you absolutely do not want to not cover mental illness in, in film because that's a part of the human condition and to not cover it would be a bigger problem. But yes, you have to be careful. It's making me think, the way you describe it, it's making me think of something you we, you covered back in the one-liner days too, which was the Iron Lady. Yeah. And you're saying that basically it used um, dementia as a narrative device. Yeah. Which seems a pretty horrible thing to do. I assume it doesn't go quite as bad as that in the pawn sacrifice. No, and it's not, it's not like it's deliberately going out of its way to make him seem like a monster or anything like that, but... It, just the facts of it when he's he's just generally unpleasant to his friends because that's how his mindset's going as he's as he kind of goes further down a rabbit hole of um you know, chasing his own tail really it 
doesn't quite feel like it's going out of his way to make him a villain, but it, it, it's getting very close to that line, and I, that's probably the one thing that put me off it more than anything else. Not to say that I didn't enjoy the film, like if, if you like, if you did enjoy that documentary, it's probably worth seeing this, and if you're mm-hmm. of any kind of interest at all in the, as I say, time period or the politics or the chess itself, then you will get something from the film, and it's an interesting watch, but I, I don't know, at the end of it, I felt a little bit dirty, you know, it felt a bit like it was being a, a, a voyeur into someone's mental decline for my own gratification rather than it being, you know and I suppose there's no real distinction between that and a documentary but at least the documentary was, you know, felt a bit more clinical, it didn't feel like it was quite so exploitative about it, you know it's not backed by, you know, big studio money and, you know, a mm-hmm. relatively A-list cast to try and, you know engineer money out of you for, for this poor guy's uh, suffering yeah, it never quite reaches the line of being exploitative, but it kind of creeps up uncomfortably close to it in a few places. It never quite sat all that well with me. Um, I just think this sort of thing is better handled by a documentary than by a drama. I may still catch up on it at some point. The documentary very much did interest me, so we'll see. Yeah. But it's such a it's a fine line you have to tread there. I think that yeah. sort of thing. Let's move on from that to something quite, quite different. Mindhorn. 1980s The Isle of Man. Actor Richard Thorncroft, Julian Barrett, is Mindhorn. An MI5 officer who's apparently also a police officer or works like a police officer. It's quite confused, let's say. <laughs> um, an MI5 officer with a laser eye and an eye for the ladies. He dashes about the island. A stand-in so often in real life, thanks to generous tax breaks for other parts of the UK, and weirdly, Ireland and New York City. Um, about the Isle of Man. Um, he dashes about the island in his Jaguar XJ, dodging bullets, causing explosions, wooing women. The six million dollar Manx. The bionic Bergerac, with his enhanced eye that can literally see the truth. Thorncroft was a star, and after three series he decides that He's had enough of this soggy little rock in the middle of the Irish Sea and its people, as well as the detective that made his name, and he's off to Hollywood. A quarter of a century later, and Thorncroft is a washed-up, bald, paunchy loser. He never made it in Hollywood, and is now both bitter and delusional, claiming friendship with the likes of Kenneth Branagh, played here by Kenneth Branagh, while trying out for wildly inappropriate roles. Bad boy Yardy, for one. His agent, Harriet Walter, can't stand him, and the only roles she has managed to procure for him in recent years are for adverts selling surgical supports and other similarly glamorous products. When a real-life murder happens on the Isle of Man, and the chief suspect, a simpleton referring to himself as the Kestrel, Russell Tovey, contacts the police and says that he is willing to talk, but only to Bruce P. Mindhorn. The police contact him, and Thorncroft spies the potential for publicity and redemption. Back where he made his name, Middle uh, Mindhorn discovers that his old flaming co-star Pat, Essie Davis, is now married to the show's stuntman, Simon Farnaby, and his hated former colleague Peter Eastman, Steve Coogan, is now a star and local great thanks to 16 series of a CSI-like Mindhorn spin-off. With all of these challenges to overcome, Thorncroft girds his loins, G's himself up, and proceeds to make a complete and utter tit of himself. Again and again. Redemption will come to Thorncroft eventually, 
but he's going to have to suffer a lot of pain to get there, as unfortunately do we, and it's going to be an unpleasant personal journey for the actor as he goes on a journey where, as director Sean Foley puts it, an arsehole realises that he's an arsehole. Not because of the presence of Steve Coogan, who is in fact rather pointlessly cast here, but Mindhorn very much brings to mind Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. But while the cheap and parochial feel of that film very much fit the infamous radio host and his circumstances, it just makes Mindhorn feel tremendously low rent. There are some genuinely very funny scenes in Mindhorn, but they're few and far between. Most of the rest is incredibly tryhard. A 30 minute idea, or perhaps even just a handful of sketches, trying and failing to fill even this modest 89 minute runtime. Particularly symptomatic of this is Russell Tovey's Paul Melly, aka the Kestrel, who's unfairly blamed innocent who believes that Mindhorn is real, could potentially have been quite interesting. Instead, he's given little to do other than wear a silly outfit, make silly noises and play about with plasticine. He's a crazy person so he makes the shrieking noises. Oh, the hilarity. My sides. Aidez-moi. I fear words like wacky and possibly the hideous zany, or some synonym, were in the air while these scenes were being written. Barrett, who co-wrote the screenplay with fellow the mighty Bush alumnus Barnaby, is actually pretty engaging in the title role and gets the majority, well, actually all, of the best scenes. I doubt that selfishness though. I just feel that they had an interesting idea for a character, but very little idea for what to surround him with. With the possible exception of Richard McCabe's down-on-his-luck publicist, none of the other characters or storylines add anything, from Nicholas Farrell's vain mare to Andrea Riseborough's thankless role in plot thread, and even Barnaby's bizarre, half-naked Dutchman, who's bordering on gold memberish and who I kept expecting to ask for a schmoke and a pancake. And really, how many nemesis does one has-been actor need? I'd really rather be looking forward to this, so I'm particularly disappointed. It's not awful, but it's really not very good, and, as I said earlier, it's very, very try-hard. As a 30-minute TV special, I think this could have been great, but it's not worthy of the big screen. One to avoid, sadly. Yeah, I mean, as a balding, washed-up, paunchy <laughs> loser myself, uh, I do have a lot of sympathy for Mindhorn, but yeah, it's, just, it's just not funny enough. No, that's it. Uh, all you need to know for a comedy, really. Is it funny? Yeah, not really. No, um, I mean, okay. I think there's only one or two times I actually properly laughed at it. I mean, one, one of which being this ludicrous capoeira sequence at the end, which <laughs> for some reason tickled me. But... It's, yeah, there's just not enough of it. Um, it's a fairly... You can kind of see what they're aiming for. The, there's mm-hmm. the potential for it there, but as you say, they've just not got enough material to cover 90 minutes. And it's all just a bit flat in a lot of places. There's just not enough gags. And there's a lot of characters that just don't quite hit home. As you say, why is Steve Cook in there in that role? No point in giving him, you know, making the payday for that. A lot of the cast I quite like, but they're just not really given a hell of a lot to do here. So mm. it's just not something I can recommend. As I say, this is just simply not funny enough. There's probably a few people who will, of course, really love it because there's a few people who really love everything. But um, <laughs> this is—I don't think it's even close to Mark Fuck funny enough to be ever being a cult classic. It's just no, it's just a minor it, comedy work for. 
it got Firefox. a lot of really good reviews as well. And I, and there, there's there's something in there. There's definitely an interesting idea. And when there's there's been a lot of work put into some of it, like the the making of the old looking episodes. That's exactly what I was going to say. I'd be, I'd be far more interested in just watching one of those than <laughs> yeah, than so this film. maybe even like in a in a dark place sort of way. Yeah. It's something that's meant to come from the 70s or 80s and just make kind of spoof 80s cop show or something like that maybe have worked. Yeah. Because the whole Russell Tovey storyline, it's, it's terrible. Um, yeah. And that, the car they don't, just like, oh, well, he's crazy, so he'll just make some noise. Like, that's not interesting. That's really cheap, lazy writing. and It's yeah. not funny. But there's, yeah, so, like, kind of the bits you see of the fake episodes and... Even just the the merchandise they've created, clearly the props department had fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they put in a lot of work making all these, um, the merchandise that they could have got for this show that was popular at the time. And there's some, so there's some work going in there and it's, that's almost sad that it's not really gone to anything good. Yeah. It does really feel like it's a case, not that, not that they just couldn't write a good character so they couldn't write enough of it. Yeah. 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 It's a pity. I'd been looking forward to that. I thought the idea was good, but it, it, in so many ways, it feels like Alpha Papa. But I said, Alpha Papa's kind of low rent nature and things fitted it, and it's also deeply, deeply funny. Yeah, this this it's, does have a bit of a not... TV movie about it, doesn't it? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a few scenes where it's trying to be a bit more high budget and a bit more glossy, and it's not really pulling it off. Um, it might have been better to embrace its sort of low rent nature, I think, than trying to shoot for higher production values than it's actually able to checkbook. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, it's a, a pity. Something of an interesting idea in there, but it's nothing like funny enough to make it worth watching, even for it only be a 90-minute film. I really would say avoid this one. I concur. So, that brings us to the end of our films for this episode. Let's go to the old Twitters, though. Got a few things to mention in there. First of all, thanks to anybody who's bothered to contact us at any point, and Anybody who retweets or tweets and message uh, mentions the show at all, we appreciate it. Please don't stop. Thank you very much. Right, first of all, Exploding Helicopter at Chopper Fireball on Twitter said that American Maid was hard to take seriously because Tom Cruise is 55 and he is playing a character who should be 35. Mm-hmm. Yes, that sounds... Um, just in general with Tom Cruise, I, I would argue that he doesn't look like he's 55 or on screen act like he's 55 but nor does he feel like he's 35 by any means yeah uh, and i really do think we're we're approaching or possibly have passed the limit where tom cruise can conceivably pull those roles off anymore we'll see it if anything it'll be dictated by box office returns rather than his own dignity so that may not um may not change we shall see although the mummy may be enough to kill that um that particular career arc dead it's certainly enough to kill the universal dark cinema universe dead after one film well played uh, uh, so I wouldn't be so sure there's a lot of I'm desperation just, going around so. I'm just being hopeful <laughs> okay and then Bob Eagle at Bob Like the Bird on Twitter said the best um, this is just this was mentioned carrying off from Tom Cruise and the best and worst thing that happened um, with Tom Cruise's career was Mission Impossible he's just played Ethan Hunt and everything since is there an Ethan Hunt vibe in American Made Scott? Mm, no, but that's probably more because I think yeah, I don't think American Made's meant to be taken seriously. It's a bit more along the lines of a 
some of his lighter, fluffier stuff and generally less successful stuff. So like I don't know, Night and Day or something like that. You know, the uh-huh. the kind of more. Oh, I'm 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 slightly funny and quirky at the same time. And I actually prefer him when he's been more towards the serious end than the silly end. Yeah, as I was mentioning earlier, I like Torgo's look, but I don't particularly associate him with comedy. I don't really think that's the strength of his. Yeah, Tropic Thunder aside. <laughs> that's a fair point, actually. I do tend to forget that. He's very funny in Tropic Thunder <laughs> with his strange prosthetic forearms. <laughs> Maybe he just needs to write comic material then. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Um. Okay. Perpetual Dumb Machine at Blake writes on Twitter said, There's a really tense spy versus spy battle of wits and subterfuge in the Death Note manga and anime. Not so much in Netflix's rushed teen drama. Yes, uh, we don't know how well it compares to the anime or the manga, but absolutely that's true about the Netflix adaptation. It's, yes. it's not got anything good going on there at all. Abridged too far. Mm. Badum. Just in case he decided to skip to the end and didn't bother listening to all of us, Matt Toller, um, at M. Toller on Twitter, said, I am far behind on my films, looking forward to hearing which, if any, of these are worth the while. Oh, that's easy enough, Matt. Pawn Sacrifice, maybe? Death Note, no. Hotel Salvation, yes. American Made, yes. Yeah. Mind Torn, no. Anthem of the Heart, yes. And if you do follow up in any of those because of our um, suggestions, let us know. Tell us what you think, please. And finally then we have Dirk or Lewis at Sonic Yoda who said he'd only seen Death Note from this, didn't really click with the original and this adaptation was very teen slasher in the Final Destruction mould. Final Destination mould. What did I say? Destruction. <laughs> did I? Okay. Uh, I didn't even notice I'd said something around there but uh, yes, it's from everything I've read and the feedback we've got and things, it does seem to be missing the real heart and subtlety and interest that was in the original. Well done. You seem to have missed the point of this thing that you've made Netflix. Excellent. Okay, uh, that's it for now. Um, apart from, we'll just take a moment to curse out Tengushi for bringing to our attention a terrible, terrible looking film, the name of which I will not mention. I don't want to spread its influence any further, but thank you for that. Join us next month when we'll be covering Attack of the Cyber Octopuses. <laughs> You're just as evil. It's maybe worth watching the trailer just so you can watch it slack-jawed like I did and wonder why someone thought some sort of strange mashup of Blade Runner and the Sentinels from the Matrix, but very small, was a good idea. But yes, so thank you for that, you get. But if you have anything to say about this episode or any others, any of the films we've covered, or anything you'd like to say to us in general, that's quite easy to do, so don't let the simple barrier of going onto Twitter using email stop you. You can find us on Twitter at FudsOnFilm. Tricky that one. You can email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com or you can find us on Facebook at Facebook slash FudsOnFilm. We're really forward to hearing it and really we do like it and we do speak back and we don't bite. So please don't be shy. For now, that's it from us. So I was Drew. I will bid you adieu. And Scott, um, if he's any voice left, will maybe say goodbye as well. <coughs> Good night.